This morning, uh, the title of my message is the question I want to ask is, why do you follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Many people come to Christ in hopes that he will make them happy. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's great joy in your sins being forgiven, all right? I'm not talking about the joy that God births. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about seeing Jesus as a shortcut or as a way to get me out of my, my bind, my fix, my trouble with my marriage, my kids, and certainly following Christ and the principles of the Word of God certainly give us great truth and wisdom. So again, just kind of hear where I'm going. But it's really more of a superficial type of happiness. Make me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, then I'm going to move on to something else. It's very much, you know, the way we, we look at choosing a restaurant or choosing a car or a spouse or something is how is it going to benefit me? How is it going to bless me? Is it going to make me happy? Is it going to fulfill what my needs are? And so they come and they make a profession of faith in Jesus to follow Jesus. And uh, maybe it's, you know, very sincere in what they do at the moment. But because they are not really making a commitment to Jesus, but more of what they perceive that Jesus can give them, how Jesus is going to fix this, how Jesus, maybe, maybe they're responding to maybe a certain type of promise given to them by the speaker or the book or whatever it is, that if you give your heart to Jesus, he'll fill and meet every whim and need of your life. You'll never have trouble. You'll never have a trial. You'll never have a test. You'll never have a heartache. Everything is just going to be streets of gold in this life. I don't know about you, but I found that that isn't necessarily the case. Now, certainly, committing your life to Jesus, there is great joy. But the kind of joy and happiness that we're going to see in John chapter 6 is not a joy that comes from following Jesus for who he is, but for what he will give me or what he can do to my life. More of kind of a, again, a very selfish type of way that they approach. Now, remember, as we review mostly every week in John twenty thirty one, John tells us at the end of this book, why he has written what he has written. He has written these things so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But it's believing in the real Jesus, right? A lot of people and the culture and churches and groups and whatever, they have a lot of different ideas about Jesus. And you can take your pick over and find almost kind of like a religious buffet line and pick the kind of Jesus that's going to fit you. But, you know, the Bible doesn't give you that option. It presents Jesus in all his truth and glory. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you come to him on his terms. You come to accept who he is, his identity, not how you might want to form and fashion and make him fit into your truth. People say that, my truth. 
So John, right from the beginning, he's wanting them not just to have an intellectual uh, decision about Jesus, but they want this belief. Notice it is believe that, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, there's transformation, that you will have life in His name. There is no transformation in an imaginary Jesus of your own choosing. There's no life in a Jesus that is just kind of the bellhop waiter who is only existing to wait for you to ring your bell, for them to come the bellhop and bring you whatever it is that you punched in that day, that he's there to serve us. That's, not the, that's maybe the imagery of an American Jesus, but that certainly isn't the Scripture's presentation. And so those many voices that uh, bring confusion, and the reason I elaborate on that a little bit is because when we come to this portion of Scripture we see a little bit of this confusion uh, among the disciples. Now, we come to the part where it speaks about uh, Jesus walking on the water, and John, in his account, you know, there's four, what we call four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is a little different than the more timeline, chronological Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John has, again, his purpose is more evangelistic, if you will. That's the reason the scripture, John 20, 31, is there. That he puts the pieces of Jesus' ministry because he's trying to drive home a particular goal and you receiving or you understanding that Jesus is indeed the real God-sent son, okay? Not that the others don't want to do that, but they follow a little bit more of a timeline, so that's why you have four of them put together and we compare them and we see certain things in the three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that John doesn't include because it just, it didn't fit his purpose. It didn't, you know, he didn't, it's kind of like movie editors, you know, they shoot a lot of film, but then the editing room, there's a lot that gets cut off, you know, they make a movie that lasts eight hours and they're like, wait a minute, we got to make this thing an hour and a half, so there's a lot that gets cut out. So John has a purpose, and John gives a little bit more of a compressed view or a compressed account of, this, of Jesus walking on the water. And so when I say that we, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch by looking at the disciples as being a little bit uh, confused, maybe disappointed, that's where we'll, as we move along, we'll bring in a few other accounts in the other three Gospels that kind of round that up, that fill in the space that John doesn't give us. Now, when we come to this John 6, we know that what we looked at last week was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the miraculous of Jesus feeding the multitude. And we mentioned how it probably was more than 5,000. It could have been easily uh, as many as 10,000 or, or more. And Jesus, in this miracle of feeding, feeding the uh, multitude, it was, a, it was a tremendous miracle and remember how the response of the crowd, and we'll look at the scripture in a little bit. I'm just giving a little bit of a jump here. The crowd, do you remember how they responded at this miracle? They wanted to make Jesus what? They wanted to make him king. That's kind of the way, like, hey, this, this is great. Free food. Let's put him in office. Let's elect him for life, guess what? We still kind of do that today, don't we? We'll vote for the one that promises us the most stuff. 
And their response was not based upon who Jesus is, but what Jesus gave them to meet a temporary need. Because as wonderful as that bread and the fish that were multiplied, they got hungry later. They got hungry the next day. And it was to illustrate, one, Jesus' power as the Son of God, but also he taught uh, about being the bread of life. And the disciples, I think it would be fair, because you see this kind of all through when you read the Gospels, that much like the, uh, every Jew pretty much in that day and time, there was great anticipation of this coming Messiah that was to come. But their concept of the coming Messiah was not the suffering servant who would die and redeem his people from their sins. Their concept of the Messiah was more of a warrior king Messiah that would come, that would, uh, remember at this time, Israel is under the dominion and control of Rome, and that this Messiah, this Messiah king would come more in a military way to, to rid the, the God's promised land of these uh, Gentile Romans and to return Israel back to the glory of David. That was their mindset. In fact, to give you remember an example that will be familiar to you. Do you remember when Jesus said in uh, Matthew 16, 18, he, uh, or Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, what's the word on the street of who I am? Remember? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, Elijah, you know, whatever. They had all the different opinions. And then he asked them, who do you say, who do you say that I am? And Peter got A plus on that exam. But then he got an F five minutes later, all right? He said, and I have to say it in the King James, thou art the son of God. You're, you're the son of God. You're the promised one. Remember when Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, any, any true knowledge of Jesus is always revealed. He has revealed this to you. And at that time in Matthew 16, he began to speak to them about the necessity of him going to the cross to be crucified. And immediately, Peter was like, and probably speaking for the rest of the group, was like, that will never happen. That will never happen. Remember, he always kept his, uh, you know, his peace there at his side. I mean, that was not going to happen. And the Bible says that Jesus, when Peter said, I forbid you from that, this idea that you're going to be crucified. Why? Because that did not fit into their idea, their preconceived idea of what the Messiah should be. Messiah being killed? No. He's going to go in there and throw these bums out and reestablish the glory of Israel. What are you talking about dying? Because they figured if he's dying, guess what? They're dying. They're not going to have anything to do with that. And Jesus, remember he rebuked Peter? And said, get behind me, Satan, because you're not mindful of the things of God. So even the disciples there, and so I think that's why it's fair to say that even here, that they uh, had a little bit of confusion, because going back to John 6, with this mindset, just to show you how embedded this mindset was, do you remember in Acts chapter 1, I think maybe verse 6, Jesus is resurrected. He's with his disciples before he ascends 
into heaven? And what is the burning question that they want to ask him? He's resurrected. He's alive. They say, Jesus, is it now at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After all that's gone on, that's still the way they see of this Messiah. That was so embedded in their theological understanding. But here's the thing. It was wrong. It was wrong. Wrong misconceptions about who Jesus is. And so this morning I want you to look at with a couple of things here. Notice in our passage we'll look briefly at. Notice uh, number one. Selfish motivations for following Jesus. If you have your listener's guide. I encourage you to use that. Be an engaged listener. That's why we put it in there. And uh, something we started doing. I know so we uh, cut down on everybody taking a bulletin. There's extra outlines that will always be back at the table. So. You can take an outline. You don't have to take a, a bulletin if you just take one per couple. But well, however you do it, that's okay. We can afford it. Uh, as long as it doesn't get into the millions or something, uh, then we'll start taking it out of the children's budget. But no, I'm just kidding. Aren't you grateful for our children's ministry? They're doing, Courtney's doing a great job. Yeah. <clears throat> but notice in John 6, number one, selfish motivations for following Jesus. Jesus does not want followers who have misconceptions about who he is uh, who use him for their own purposes. Look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, that's in verse 1 through 13, the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the the food, uh, feeding the multitude. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed Not a prophet, but what? The prophet. What are they talking about? Well, I think what they're talking about is what is written. It won't be on the screen back in. You may want to make a note of this. And probably your uh, footnote or cross-reference has this. Deuteronomy 18.15. Because Moses prophesied that there would be. God would send one like him. A prophet that would be like him. That God would send. Uh, from among you, and you will listen to him. Deuteronomy 18.15. So that was very much in their mind because going way, way, way back to Moses, they had a prophecy that God was going to send one who would be a prophet like Moses. And Moses was the numero uno, number one uh, prophet in their minds. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? You had Moses and Elijah there. So Moses, very important. But remember, their mindset was they wanted a political king. Um, And so the disciples struggled with this wrong way of thinking, and we saw that with Peter. And the only reason I point that out is because many, maybe even here today, you struggle in your Christian walk because you're really trying to conform to a Jesus built out out of your own imagination rather than what the Word of God has to say. And that will not always make everybody happy. Preview of coming attractions later, because we're going to, there's a lot here in John chapter 6. But it's interesting, as you read through John chapter 6, and Jesus begins to lay out the terms of who he really is and what it means to be a follower of him, it says in John 6, verse 66, that's how I always remember it, John 6, 6, 6, all right? So 
don't hate me. It's just, that's the way it is, all right? That's how I remember it, John 6, 6, 6. It says, from that moment on, many disciples turned back and stopped following Jesus. What did they react to? They react, they reacted to the truth of what he laid down. They were ready to make him a king, saying he was the prophet earlier. Now, they don't want anything to do with him. What was the difference? The difference was he was real with them of what it meant of who he was, who he is, and what it meant to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus. That's not changed. Because if you present a Jesus to this culture, and everything about being a Jesus follower is going to be rosy and happy and blessed and health and wealth and prosperity, listen, people will flock to that. But you begin to talk about laying your life down. You begin to take, talk about what Jesus said, unless you take up your cross, that if you follow me, you may be hated. You will be persecuted. A student is not above his master. You begin to talk about what we oftentimes refer to as the lordship of Christ. Everybody's into having him as savior. Everybody, hey, we're good to get that ticket punched and not go to hell. But making him the leader, the commander, the lord, the the, of my life that I'm, I'm going to have to follow his precepts and my life is going to have to be conformed to what he says, no matter how difficult, I, you know, it's, I don't know. And some churches kind of present the lordship as kind of an option. You know, you buy a car and if you want to spend an extra $1,500 to have it rust-proof, nah, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to spend the money. That's an option. Lordship's not an option. Well, I, you know, I'm, I love him as Savior, but Lordship, let me think about it. He'll let you think about it. In fact, there's many places where those who came to him and said, we'll lay our life down, and he made one request of something for them to respond in obedience, and the Bible says they, they like went away. Jesus will let you walk away. He's not interested in just drawing fans. Fans, you know, hey, we're all for Jesus. We got the bumper sticker and the fish on our car. He wants disciples. He wants people who are going to be under his leadership, his lordship. And so the struggle that we see here that was a part of these followers at this time, and we kind of alluded to where this is going, but I want you to notice, secondly, not only the selfish motivations or the selfish motivations, uh, uh, motivations, miscon do I have misconceptions? No, sh sh yeah, selfish motivations, but also there's sincere motivations for following Jesus. And we want to look at those. You know, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, scripture that you should have marked in your Bible. If you're like me, you need to look at it every day. Reads, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is the Lord speaking. For my thoughts, the Lord says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways, Tim, my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, Lord, help me to in alignment, calibrate myself into your ways and your thoughts. Help me of why am I a follower of Jesus? 
help me to get in sync, if you will, to your purposes and your ways. And one of the one of the tests that oftentimes is revealing in my own life, and maybe this is true in your life, of whether that's working or happening in my life, is to the level that I'm thanking him versus I'm griping to him. That I'm grumbling at my situation, and I'm, I'm complaining, and I'm, I'm always angry and bitter at why the glass is half full. Instead of being thankful to Jesus that I even have a glass. Hello? That's a real indicator. You know, they got those devices. Maybe some of you have it here. and uh, You know, where they'll put like a, a patch or a little device on your arm. And it'll give you real-time information through your smartphone of your blood sugar. And for people that have diabetes, it'll help measure that. So when you're when you gorged on that chocolate cake, you can look on your phone and see your blood sugar go to 800, you know, whatever it is, right? And, uh, and it just helps you in real time monitor that. I always thought, what if you had that, and every time you griped or complained, it just sent off a little alarm, and it measured the griping and the complaining versus the thanking and praising him for what God has done in your life. Biblical Christianity means that I am, I have and I continue to joyfully, listen to my words carefully, that I joyfully surrender to him as Lord and that I'm his servant. Let's go back to John. I'm going to, just for context, I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 again and read through verse 21. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. The Bible says Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And now again, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a little bit in here, but I don't think it's inconsistent. They're like, where is he gone? Jesus, you don't know your own moments. This is a great moment. They're ready to make you king. This is what we've given up our businesses, our families. This is what we've left for. And you're leaving? You're going off by yourself? Why aren't you taking advantage of this crowd that wants to adore you and wants to make you king? This is what this is all about. And when evening came, verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, Sea of Galilee, got into a boat and started across, or I'm sorry, the Sea of Capernaum. And it was now dark, Get the idea, the condition. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. You're out on a boat. It's dark, and if that's not bad enough, verse 18 says, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they rowed about three or four miles, that's a lot of rowing. About three or four feet for me. They rowed. But three or four miles, dark, storm, exhausted, weary, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Just briefly this morning, the time we have before we partake of the Lord's table at the close this morning, I want you to notice with me five 
five ways that will help us as followers to evaluate why do we follow Jesus. And the way that we truly follow Jesus is not only knowing who he is, but growing into who he is. And I want you to notice five ways that are there in your, your handout for you to follow. Number one, we grow to know. These are all growing to know and trust Jesus. We grow to know and trust Jesus' person, his person through the trials that he puts us through. We grow to know and trust Jesus' person through the trials that he puts us through. John tells us that Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself to be alone. The disciples got into the boat and started across the sea without him. And John adds this, this statement there in verse 17. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. They're like, wait a minute. They're already a little confused, maybe a little frustrated. And they're like, great, now we're going to die. How did you get us into this mess, Peter? Well, Andrew, you were the one that brought me. I mean, I mean, and so as, oh, Jesus, or rather than John, verse 17. You remember John, again, he's writing this after the fact. So he, he knows where this story's going. He, know, he knows what's going on. He knows how this thing's going to play out here and he anticipates it when he said Jesus had not yet come which would imply he knows he knows how the story works out the disciples are on the lake in a dark storm they're without Jesus but here's the thing that we even kind of caught a little bit last week in um, uh, in uh, the feeding of the 5,000 you know Jesus certainly knew the conditions he knew where they were. He knew what was going on. It wasn't like, you know, he didn't check his weather report. And guess what? He let the disciples struggle for a little bit. Right? He let them struggle. He let them, he let them row. He let them go out in the dark. He knew the storm was coming. He let them struggle against the storm for several hours. Verse 19 says, uh, they rode three or four miles, uh, the more in the ESV and other more modern translations. Your version may say that it was the fourth watch of the night between three and six that Jesus came to them. The middle of the night. You ever had to get up in the middle of the night and do something? I don't know why I thought of this, but I thought about the middle of the night, one of my kids waking up and throwing up. That is not what you want to do at two or three in the morning. I mean, you're half awake and you're irritated and you've got this mess. But you got to, you know, you're like, can't you do this at five o'clock in the afternoon? Can't you? Do, you know, life doesn't work that way. He has these disciples. Think about it, guys. And think about this in parallel to your life. He allows them to be the very vulnerable. And struggle. And in the dark. And that's when Jesus shows up. You know, heard the old preacher say, he may never be early, but he's never late. Jesus, at their greatest point in need, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And I guess if you had asked John afterwards, an interview with John, John might would say, oh, it was an awful thing to be on the lake in the dark and the storm for that long without Jesus in the boat. I mean, I don't know what was going on, but... 
But you know what John would say? If he had not sent us into that situation, we would have never seen his glory of walking on the water. Here's the the wild thing about this. In the midst of the darkness and the struggle, is that not when you see the brightest light of God's glory and goodness and reality? You know, if you were to go to the jeweler and want to buy a diamond or whatever you notice, they put down that black felt cloth and put the diamonds. Why? Because their brilliance is greater against the darkness. Hebrews 12.11 says no discipline is enjoyable while it's happened. You could put trial. It's painful. But afterward, aren't you glad there's an afterward? And this again is God's working in our lives. This is not, this is, we're not talking about unbelievers. This is God's working in our lives. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living, the New Living Translation says, for those who are trained in this way. God, help me to be trained. I think I have the ESV up there, I read it. But this righteousness of who, those who have been trained by it, help me to be trained in the moments in the dark in the boat by myself when I feel like nothing I need you in the boat but you're, you're I feel like you've abandoned me but he says I'll never leave you I'll never forsake you he hadn't abandoned you he knows right where those guys are but he's going to let them struggle a little bit this is something else that I think If you don't hear anything else, don't miss this. Remember the mindset of the crowds? They wanted to do what? Wanted to make him king. They wanted to kind of, in fact, the Bible says they wanted to take him by force. False misconceptions about Jesus. Certainly the disciples would have been a keen to that because that was pretty much a very common understanding. Had they not been in the boat... Had Jesus not allowed them to get in that boat and get away from that crowd, guess what? They could have been sucked right into the misconceptions of a false Jesus. Sometimes the things that you perceive to be the biggest letdowns and disappointments in your life was really the protective element of God's sovereignty. That storm kept them from joining the crowd in their error and wanting to make Jesus a political king. The thing that you say, oh, that was so disappointing, so disheartening. I don't know why it turned out that way. You look back with those eyes of Joseph and say what man meant for evil, God meant for good. You look back with those eyes of seeing the sovereign hand of a merciful God and you say, thank you, Jesus. That you put me in that boat, in the dark, in the storm, and kept me and protected me from falling into a situation that could have ruined my life. Notice also, secondly, we grow to know and trust Jesus' purpose in the trials he puts us through. We grow to know and trust Jesus' purpose in the trials that he puts us through. One of my favorite authors is an old 
author by the name of Arthur Pink. And in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he makes this observation. I thought, wow, that's good. I almost acted like I made it up, but I'd be lying. I didn't I read it from him, so don't be impressed with me. Be impressed with Mr. Pink. But in his commentary, he points out that these people, this crowd, proclaimed Jesus as their prophet and were willing to make him their king. But the Bible tells us that there's three offices the Messiah fulfilled. Prophet, king, and priest. What does a priest do? A priest is the one, and Jesus fulfilling that office. In the Old Testament, the priest could only offer a sacrifice of an animal or whatever. He was only a, a picture of the future high priest of Jesus. But the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews shows us is that Jesus is not offering an, a sacrifice outside of himself. He is the sacrifice. He is our high priest. And so, prophet and king, yay! Sacrifice for sin, nah! Not ready to accept Christ as my propitiation, my sacrifice. Not by works that I bring, but to Christ alone I cling. That He is the offering. He is the one who gave His life. And so, the reminder is that His purpose, and this kind of pushes against this sense of this, this me, myself, and I theology is, guess what? It's not all about you and me. It's about what will glorify God. My life is expendable to glorify and honor Jesus. And so how was Jesus glorified? He was glorified through the darkest tragedy of the cross. That God's magnificence and glory, that He was just and the justifier a sinful men and women was seen in the cross. His purpose, his purpose is to be, have us conform to his image. Paul would write in Ephesians 1 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12 of Ephesians 1, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He says in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. His purpose, friend, in your life and my life is for Him, His Son, Jesus Christ, to be glorified in my life. That's His purpose. And you remember the scripture, I don't have it on the screen, but if you, I think it's in Philippians 1.12. Paul's in prison. People are talking bad about him. They're trashing him. Things don't look good. And Paul says, I believe in Philippians 1.12, it might be verse 14. Have to, he says, but you know, all this that has happened to me has advanced the gospel. Meaning, my arrest, my prison, all this bad stuff. He says, it really has actually advanced the purposes of God. That's a radical statement. He's saying, all this that has happened to me, jail, arrest, people talking bad about me, friends that have abandoned me, all of this... He says, really, because he has a kingdom mindset, really, all of this is advancing the kingdom of God. So he says, I'm good. I'm good. How do you get there? To know and trust. 
Growing, knowing, and trusting in Jesus. Look at the third. We grow to know and trust Jesus' providence. His providence in the trials that he puts us through. You know, the disciples went from the mountaintop experience of feeding maybe 10,000 people to the valley of the storm. Struggling to cross the sea by themselves without Jesus. And when Jesus told them to get in that boat and go to the other side, Jesus knew. He didn't have to look at the weather channel. He knew. He knew what was happening. He knew he was sending him in a storm. In fact, reminder, remember back in verse 6 of chapter 6, when he asked Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? What does the Bible say? It says, he knew. He was just testing Philip. He knew. You don't ever give, Jesus never learns anything. God never learns anything. He knows all. He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow and down this next week and next month, next year. He knows all about you. It may have caught you and me by surprise, but guess what? He never said, oops. God never said, oh my goodness, I never thought of that. No surprises. He knew. And Mark, we're going to call in a lifeline. Mark 6.48 to fill in a little. This is the same account, but Mark and Matthew give us some information that John doesn't include. Look at Mark 6.48. He saw, this is Jesus, Jesus saw, seeing them struggling on the, in, the, in the boat, on the water, he saw, by, not, now it's maybe three or four miles from where Jesus is, so how did he see? He saw them because of what, you know, his omniscience, his all-knowing. He's God. He saw that they were in serious trouble Get the picture here. Rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. You may feel like that's me right now. I'm rowing as hard as I can. And I'm struggling against the wind and the waves. Jesus knew exactly where they were. And it says at about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them. Walking on the water. Now, Mark gives us a little detail, and I think it's funny, I don't have it all here, but it says he intended to go past them. I think that's a little humor of Jesus. Can you imagine? They're struggling, yelling, crying, oh Lord, and he just kind of walks by them. Maybe one just saw some other corner. I don't know, but it's kind of funny. He's like, I'm just, I think, I, he like, it just seemed like he liked messing with them every once in a while, right? He intended to go past them. but I'm glad they saw him. And you know what? You can be struggling in your boat, rowing hard against the wind, and you can be so in focus on your situation, don't miss Jesus coming by. Don't get so distracted that you're going to miss the Savior. He won't walk by you, but you've got to look for him. Matthew gives us some more information here in Matthew 14. Again, same story, but the other writers fill out some information. Verse 22, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross the other side. This is a little before this. While he sent the people home. And after sending them home, Jesus went up into the hills by himself to pray. 
Night fell while he was there alone. He's praying. Disciples are in the boat. Meanwhile, the disciples, verse 24, were in trouble far away from the land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. Same situation. Matthew just kind of gives a little different details. And so we grow to know and trust Jesus' providence in the trials he puts us through. When we talk about God's providence, listen to me, God's providence means that nothing happens to us apart from his sovereign, loving will. John Piper says this, he says, providence, and I like this, is God's purposeful Sovereignty. Its extent reaches down to the flight of electrons and up to the movements of galaxies and into the heart of man. Its nature is wise and just and good. In other words, there is not a speck or a nanospeck of creation that is not outside of the purview or control of God. R.C. Sproul would always say, there is not a renegade atom, A-T-O-M, running through the universe that is not under God's sovereign control. And if there was, he wouldn't be God. You say, well, I struggle with that. Well, welcome to the club. But I'd rather struggle with that than the idea that there's a God who's always at the mercy of circumstances and doesn't know what's going on. Is that more comforting to you? You like that better? That the devil can always out-check him? Does that help you? It doesn't help me. James Montgomery Boyce, with the Lord now, says providence means that God has not abandoned the world that He created, but rather works within that creation to manage all things according, and he quotes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, according to the immutable, that just means unchanging, counsel of his own will. Don't confuse foreknowledge with providence. Little theology, so stretch your brain just for a moment. It's not just, providence is not synonymous with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge speaks about how God knows everything that's going to happen. It's foreknowledge, it's knowledge in advance. That's true. Providence means that God is orchestrating, designing, managing, moving all things to his purpose. Jesus, God, God, a very God, is not passively an observer of life. He's moving all things according to his will. Daniel 4.35 reminds us that all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Notice the last. Number four, letter D. We grow to know and trust Jesus' power we grow to know and trust Jesus' power in the trials he puts us through. This is about growing and knowing the real Jesus in our life. 
You want a Jesus of your own imagination? That, he didn't allow these disciples to get sucked in by the imagination of the crowds. And so we grow to know and trust Jesus' power in the trials that he puts us through. It is well with my soul, birthed by a man who lost his wife and children just out at sea on a, on a ship that sunk. And as he was on the, years later, or later that year, and he was on a ship crossing the Atlantic, he had the captain notify him when they were over the exact spot of where that ship went down with his wife and children. And he penned these words. It is well with my soul. That's not a giddy, phony, baloney. That's a deep-rooted sense that my joy is anchored in the God who knows the beginning and the end. My joy is anchored in the Alpha and the Omega. That as Job would say, though he slay me, yet, yet, I like the King James, though he slay me, yet, will I trust him. You don't get that by reading books about how to make every day a Friday, folks. But notice that Jesus' power was demonstrated walking on the water. I mean, we just say that like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's a common thing. I mean, but notice our trials do not prevent Jesus from coming to us. They don't hinder him. As dark and as troublesome as their situation is, it's not a hindrance from him coming into your, your scene, your life. Even though we can't imagine how he'll do it. But also, don't, don't neglect this. Also at the same time, it is not always his will to use his power to deliver us. See, that's where people, they don't like that. Because they, they, want a, they want a God that's going to respond to every little. And if he didn't fit in that little box. But think about it. Jesus did not deliver John the Baptist from Herod's sword. Could he have? Yep. He delivered Peter from prison. But he allowed James to be executed in prison. Read through Hebrews 11. In that hall of faith. And read how many were killed, died, murdered. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, stoned because of his testimony of faith in Jesus. And he let Saul live. How does that work? Great is the mystery of God. You see, take your misunderstanding and your, look, I don't go to a class before I get on a plane and it flies and takes me somewhere. They don't, they don't review how aerodynamics works and all that. Do you understand this now? Are you ready to fly? No, I'm, you know, sheep being led to slaughter. I get on that thing. Oh, yeah, sit down. Right? Right? You do too. Right? You get in your car. 
Some of you know a little bit more about mechanics than others, but you flip on the lights. You don't understand. You use the internet. There's a lot of things that we do that we don't understand. There's a lot of things, but in the mystery and holiness and the sovereignty of God, God only requires one response, not for us to say, oh, I get it now. You, you've explained it adequately. It's to bow the knee and say, great, great is thy God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Wait, walk through? That isn't what the preacher told me. I'm supposed to fly over it in faith. No, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. Why? Because you're close beside me. You're right there with me. Last, I said that was last, but I lied. Last, E, is we grow to know and trust Jesus' presence. Presence, and that's not... Christmas presence, that's presence in the trials he puts us through. John 6, 21, I love this, that when he came by, when he came to them in that boat they were struggling with, it says, then they were eager to let him in. Isn't that a great statement? Listen, when you screwed up and mismanaged your life, and you got to look up to see bottom, my friend. You're eager to let Jesus in. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to say it again. When you've messed up, self-managing your life, your family, your circumstances, you're eager and excited to let Jesus come in. Because you're tired. You're weary. And you know what the problem sometimes is? We're just not that tired. We're going to keep We're going to keep rowing. We're going to keep rowing. By golly, my daddy was a German and I'm going to row. We don't give in. We don't surrender for nothing. Sorry, Germans. And you know what? He'll walk by and let you keep rowing. He'll walk by and let you just say, hey. Man at the man at the pull at the uh, Bethesda. Do you, do you do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? This to me was encouraging. One of the underlying narratives of all this that we see working in Jesus and these disciples. As we see Jesus' tremendous grace and patience with his followers. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful he's patient with me. I'm thankful that he's gracious with me. I'm thankful that he didn't just get one, you know, bite at the apple and get, you know, the, get the lesson, but he, he'll keep coming back again and again and again until I get it. And he's gracious. Mark 6. 51 through 52. Again, switching around Mark's account. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. That was previously. Now this is, I didn't bring this up, but the episode of where they're in the, the storm now, there was a previous situation they were in a storm. Remember and Jesus is taking a nap? 
And they wake him up. So they had that in their toolbox. But they, but, but so this is another situation that in Mark 8, which is parallel to John 6, but at that Mark passage, sorry, verse 51 through 52, this is speaking about the previous situation, but I want you to see something here. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Maybe that was the situation. It, I got a little mixed up there in all the parallels. But I want you to see that they, they didn't understand. And last week, remember we talked about the lesson of the loaves? You'll see that repeated. And in fact, we'll see it repeated again a few chapters later in Mark chapter 8, verse 4. They have another situation where now there's 4,000, just double it. This is different than the five. There's, now there's another multitude. And guess what? They need, they need food. And it's like, okay, boys, let's try this again. And his disciples answered him, picking up in verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now remember, these are the same guys that witnessed that miracle previously. In verse 16 of that same chapter, Mark 8, and they began discussing. I just want you to see how these disciples aren't too much different than you and me. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And look at this. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12, you know, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? Tim, do you not yet understand? Here's the good news. The Lord didn't give up on them. And he doesn't give up on us. He didn't give up on them. And he's not giving up on you. Even though we're slow to learn, He's gracious with us as we struggle to know Him and trust Him. Trust and obey, the old hymn says, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Even when things, listen to me folks, even when things do not go as you expected or hoped, you can know that Jesus is still in control. He's still Lord. And through your trials, through your testings, through your hardships, you grow, you have the opportunity to grow as a disciple, to know his person, his purpose, his providence, his power, his presence, to know who Jesus really is. And to anchor my hope, my faith in the true Jesus of the Word of God. One of my favorite hymns, in fact, it's so favorite, I... Got it taped in my Bible. 
I'm not going to sing it all to you. I asked, and I didn't, I didn't spring it on the team to, for them to do it, but we will sing it. Some of you know this. All the way, Savior leads me. All the way, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His faithful mercies? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, ere by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus do with all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus do with all things well. He always does. Let's pray.